You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. This is Station F, the podcast, and I'm Roxanne Barza. This week's guest is the incredible CEO and co-founder of Airtable, Howie Liu. I don't think Airtable needs any introduction for this audience. An incredible company that's kind of taken the world by storm and most recently raised their Series D round, $185 million, with some of the best investors out there. All right, let's get to it. Hi, Howie. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. I have to ask you a question. We're going to get to talk about Airtable, obviously, but you said something not too long ago that just kind of blew my mind. Um, You said that you would refuse an acquisition. (laughs) I'm just wondering, did you shoot yourself in the foot? You know, I think there's two parts of it. One is that we just think that the market opportunity for Airtable to be this software creation platform is enormous. And, you know, no acquirer would be able to fully price in the massive market opportunity into a deal. So one, I think rationally, just the upside, the the opportunity space is huge. Two, you know, we really believe in running this as an independent business. We have a very clear vision, a very clear path, and now an organization that's primed and ready to go. It's, you know, composed of a lot of humans who are all excited and collaborative to get there. So We're really, really focused on building a great independent company. I love it. I actually obviously asked you this question just to kind of mess with you a little bit, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs probably get in the game thinking they're going to sell. I'm just wondering, was that ever something you thought about when you started out or has this kind of always been a very long-term project? Yeah, I, I sort of went, you know, kind of completely from, from one side of the, the spectrum to the other. You know, when I started my first company, eTax, you know, I was fresh out of college, didn't know what I was doing, uh, not that I still do, um, you know, but really uh, didn't have this longer term conviction with that company that um, we now have with Airtable. Um, and I think there's there's basically two ways that you can start a company. And, and you know, neither one is necessarily better than the other. But, you know, the first way is to kind of just launch something, see if it sticks. You kind of figure out what is the market opportunity later. Uh, And that's what my first company was. And so we got to this point about a year in, we had raised some money, we had a really strong but tiny team. um, And we were kind of in this in-between phase where we could have kept going, uh, but also didn't have a ton of conviction that you know, the the light at the end of the tunnel would reveal this massive opportunity. Um, And so in that company, we actually sold out pretty early um, and ended up taking an acquisition from Salesforce. That ended up being a great learning experience. um, And so, you know, was was well worth it. Uh, But at their table, I think we took a different approach, which is, you know, we really kind of uh, ruminated on, on the opportunity uh, for quite a while before diving headfirst in. And so Airtable is a company that took three years just to get from ideation to launching the V1 product, which is three times the entire life cycle of, of that first company. That's incredible. I think I think it's quite something to say, you know, we sold the first company, we kind of, we learned that, we did that, we've been there. Now we're doing something totally different. I find that absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm, so now I kind of want to get into, obviously, the idea for Airtable. You said it took three years to kind of go from idea to product. But just talk to me, like, how, how did you identify this opportunity and this need? Because it almost doesn't seem obvious. 
<laughs> yeah, I think um, I really liked the uh, transcripts from Peter Thiel's lectures at Stanford on startups. And one of them is, is about uh, secrets. And the gist is that, you know, if you want to go and build a really great company, you kind of have to have a secret. Otherwise, you know, if this was an obvious opportunity and it was straightforward to execute, somebody else should have done it, right? Markets are generally, you know, kind of efficient, especially over the long term. Um, and so, you know, I do think you have to have some novel way of looking at a problem or a better understanding of a problem to be able to go and build something massive. In the case of Airtable, you know, I think part of it was luck. You know, I think every company entails some degree of luck. Um, but I think part of it was actually that I got exposed to this really, really incredible context when at Salesforce and seeing the, the massive opportunity that on the enterprise side of the world, Salesforce was unlocking as effectively one giant app platform. But, you know, one that, that was meant for really heavyweight use cases, something that, that requires a lot of implementation effort. And so I got to see that market exploding on the high end of the enterprise spectrum and, you know, really just took that, that idea and wanted to democratize it, make software creation accessible to a wider and more consumer-oriented or end-user-oriented audience. Okay, I find this really fascinating what you've just said because you kind of identified this problem kind of through um, something that was missing from Salesforce. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs would shy away from almost that kind of opportunity because they would maybe think, well, Salesforce could launch this tomorrow or maybe this could be seen as just a feature. What made you think that that was not the case? Certainly, that would have been valid criticism. In fact, I'm pretty sure we got that feedback from investors or at least some investors early on. Um, you know, first off, I think. If you're not getting critique like that on, on the sort of idea, then it may be too obvious an idea. You know, I think you have to get some pushback from some people and then you have to have just some, some reason why you can suspend disbelief for yourself. I think for us, it really came down to this realization that it's easier said than done to go and make a, a software creation platform for end users. It's not just an idea that you say, okay, that's the idea. Let's go build it in a weekend, do a hack project. You know, that's kind of how Twitter was conceived um, through effectively a hack weekend. Um, but you can't really hack that together. And so for us, we got this conviction around it, you know, little by little by one, doing research on the space. So we talked to a lot of people who had worked on similar products or companies over the past few decades. I mean, we went out and, and talked to the person who conceived Microsoft Access. Um, we got to chat with uh, Steven Sanofsky early on, who um, who had overseen a lot of the work of Office and Microsoft throughout history, and got to this conviction that, yeah, there's no structural reason why this product doesn't exist. I think we also realized that the product offering would be fundamentally different from what any other company was particularly good at or, or had in their arsenal right now. So, you know, Salesforce really has this strong DNA around building value for enterprise customers who adopt products through this top-down kind of sales model, and it works for them. But what we were really doing was trying to build a product that end users would self-serve into, that would be kind of bottoms-up adopted. And even, you know, the other companies like Google and Microsoft, we felt like they had the structural disadvantage because they were already focused on building an office suite in the same old traditional mold instead of reimagining what this product could be. I think that's, uh, I think, a very good way to describe it because I think you mentioned wanting to democratize, um, and I think you're absolutely right when you when you talk about this kind of almost infiltrating approach uh, that Airtable can can have. It kind of sneaks up on you. 
uh, and your team. And I think I think it's fascinating. But I, I kind of want to take a step back. I think a lot of people are using Airtable today. It's beautiful. It does so many things. I want to know what your V1 looked like. What what did you guys first put out there? What did it do? What was wrong with it? <laughs> yeah, a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really was this iterative approach. Um, so we didn't go and spend those three years pre-launch just writing a bunch of code and then, you know, waiting to release anything to the world, you know, at the end. Um, it really was this series of progressive unlocks where initially our first question was just if a lot of the crux of this company rests on our ability from a product and from a design standpoint to be able to actually expose database and application building concepts to end users. You know, that, that's the part that's easier said than done. And probably, you know, if you can't do that, then your company just is a little bit DOA. Um, or at best, you become more of a niche product that's adopted not by true end users, but really becomes more of an admin or an IT driven product. Um, and there were a lot of those out there, you know, these low code, already, you know, kind of database app platforms, um, but just ones that that were too hard to, to be usable by a mainstream business user. And so the V1 was really, we just created a, a prototype of the interface um, and it didn't actually work. You know, it didn't persist your data. There was no login. We literally took this prototype around and tested it on dozens of different people in different jobs, different roles, and, and wanted to see if they could get it. And once we got to comfort there, we, we really kind of moved on to subsequent iterations where I think the next one was, okay, can we actually get people now to change their behavior? It's, it's one thing to create a product that's useful. It's another to create a product that's useful enough or, or you know, so much better that people change their habits. And in our case, the habit was probably using Excel or Google Sheets. And that's a pretty strong habit to break. And, and so we really wanted to just see, can we even get you know, a handful of customers anecdotally to just go and, and switch their behavior and, and actually start using this thing and persisting data in it. Um, and so we kind of built the, the hackiest possible version uh, to validate that and, and so on and so forth until you know somehow we ended up with a product that was you know actually launch ready and then could get out to their um, to the public uh, markets. Yeah, so I want to come back to this this behavior that you touched upon. I think that's probably something that a lot of companies somehow get wrong. Um, or they don't care about it enough, or they don't even, they're not even conscious of it. Um, so you mentioned that, I mean, going up against Excel or Google Sheets, like that's not a small feat. So how do you actually approach changing someone's behavior with your product? Yeah, to be honest, I think that's, that's an area where, you know, there was a little bit of luck there because you, you don't, you never really know if you're going to have enough of a compelling reason to, to get people to switch until you bring it out to the world and, and get people to use it. I, I do think a few of the specific tactics we used, one were, you know, the, the very premise of Airtable was not just to be an enhancement or a better Excel or Google Sheet, but really we were focused on taking a subset of use cases for spreadsheets. Namely, you know, when you're using a spreadsheet for number crunching, Excel and Google Sheets is gonna be the right product. Um, that's what really spreadsheets were made for. You know, if you go back all the way to the 80s and VisiCalc and Lotus 1 through 3, and then later, you know, the evolution to Excel, the spreadsheet was really a number crunching tool. Um, it turns out, though, that the majority of times that now a spreadsheet is used, it's not number crunching. It's actually kind of organizing lists of, of content. You know, it's creating inventory lists, contact lists, customer lists. And, you know, you're, you're basically building a database or even an app um, inside the spreadsheet. And so we were really focused on just making Airtable awesome 
for the latter use cases and not even trying to compete against Excel or Google Sheets for any number crunching use cases. So we didn't you know, try to build really advanced number crunching features or graphing features, for instance, on day one. I mean, that would have been a very, very uphill proposition because those products are so good at it. We really focused on things like file attachments, on having rich field types so you could do more than just put in text and numbers and, and starting to do things that then were really visibly better than those products for organizational use cases. So the fact that you could you know, expand a row and actually see it in kind of this form view and see the long comments, um, be able to access it on a mobile in a more app-like way. We really honed in on the, the job to be done and made sure that we were hopefully more than just 30% better. We were five times better for those use cases. Um, so I think picking a smaller sub-problem rather than trying to go heads up against these products and say we're a categorically better Excel or Google Sheet was part of the key. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's fascinating. I think it's probably something a lot more companies should pay attention to. But I have to come back to something you said earlier. I'm just boggled by it. How on earth did it take you guys three years to get a product out? Well, you know, I, I, I promise you we weren't just uh, twiddling our thumbs, um, but it is a long time. Um, and, you know, I think it's um, it's a function of one, this is a product that, you know, did require a lot of technical innovation to build. You know, I think there are some products where the innovation is more on the business side or the you know operational side. For instance, if you're building a new Uber-like app or an Airbnb-like app, the software is pretty straightforward. Um, but obviously, there's a lot of um, operational complexity to getting you know, drivers, getting, getting houses on the platform. For Airtable, you know, there wasn't any operational complexity, but it was all software complexity. And so we had to build a real-time relational database engine that actually supported this Google Sheets, you know, Google Docs-style real-time experience, but on top of this database you know, and more app-like data structure. So you know, that, that actually took a fair amount of time, I think the product had a complex interface surface area. So if you think about all of the pixels and all of the interactions that go into the Airtable product, there's just a lot more surface area there than for a lot of simpler consumer apps. So I think one, it was just a wider uh, technical surface area for us to cover. Um, I think two, we did intentionally keep the team pretty lean back in the day. And so you know, starting out, we raised a fairly, you know, kind of reasonable amount of money. I think we raised a few million dollars in our seed round. We didn't go through an incubator. And we really wanted to get the product right instead of being forced to kind of launch it on an accelerated timeline. And I don't know if that was the right or wrong strategy, but I can say that it definitely allowed us to lay the foundations for, for the product, for the business, to think about, you know, what types of customers, what types of use cases we wanted to optimize for early on. And, and avoid, hopefully, the trap of getting pigeonholed into the wrong, you know, a valid but wrong initial market. Yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering, though, like three years, just it, even though it's probably very justified, given what you guys are doing today, clearly justified. But were the investors like freaking out? Uh, you know, I think uh, it helped that I don't think we raised the money until half uh, halfway into that three years. So for the year, first year and a half, I think it was just my, my co-founder and I bootstrapping this company. You know, we, we were working out of each other's living rooms. We were kind of doing a lot of prototypes, building the product. So the investors at least didn't have to wait that full three years. Um, I do think that it was really important that we found investors that were really aligned to the long-term vision of this company. You know, they weren't investing because they wanted to see a quick hit on their investment, you know, some, some, uh, 
immediate metric or some immediate return. They really, you know, bought into this idea that we were trying to build a lifelong company, you know, something that have a, you know, even if very small chance, uh, but a real chance at becoming the next Microsoft. I love it. Um, I want to fast forward now just a little bit. Um, sure. So we were talking about the, the V1 and launching and first product. And obviously today, like, I don't know how many businesses are using Airtable at the moment. What's what's the number? 200,000. 200,000. So like, just because especially our audience is a very like early stage startup, how do you roll it out? And you, ta you talked a little bit about kind of behavioral change earlier, but I'm just wondering, mm -hmm. are there any like tricks that you guys used? Anything that really worked? How did you get, how did you kind of scale from those first initial customers to where you are today? Truth be told, I think Airtable is not a good uh, role model for, for others to follow because we, this is, you know, one of the areas where we did get lucky. You know, they say that you can't just build something and hope that people come. And, you know, that, that wasn't necessarily uh, our plan, but, you know, we, we did kind of build this product, um, launched it, you know, and it wasn't this immediate overnight sensation, but we did see this gradual and organic buildup of, of traction. If you look at, you know, the number of new daily signups that we've gotten over time from, you know, February 2015, when we did that public launch all the way to today. I mean, it's been this pretty steady progression um, as uh, Good to Great or Jim Collins describes it. You know, it's kind of like the 20 mile march where it wasn't this massive sudden spike and then a, you know, kind of tail off. It was pretty uh, slow and steady and, and kind of building up this flywheel. So I do think that for us, we got a little bit lucky insofar as, you know, without actually coming up with some breakthrough marketing strategy. Um, you know, we, we certainly did things like tried to make the onboarding of the product show what you could do um, as quickly as possible. We tried to build templates to appeal to different use cases, but there was no one silver bullet that kind of led to the adoption. And I think it was ultimately this factor of, you know, we built a product that apparently people really wanted, you know, the, the customers who wrote back to us when we would, would send them emails asking them what they were using Airtable for, or what they thought, you know, would send back these multi-paragraph long letters, basically saying, wow, this is great. Like, this is what I've been looking for for a very long time. Maybe they used a Microsoft Access or a FileMaker-like product back in the day. You know, they're trying to run their business off this thing. And so I think it was really just this deep problem um, that we were trying to solve that uh, allowed us to kind of get away with less uh, clever marketing because, you know, people were just trying to solve a problem for themselves. And, uh, and the value prop was, was deep enough to help us surmount those uh, adoption or, or behavioral change hurdles. I, I just find it fascinating. I'm almost curious to know what was in those kind of love letters that you guys got from the users. But I want to now um, kind of come to something that I, I've, I mean, we talked about comparing this to, you know, going up against Google Sheets, going up against Excel. And yet I have seen you say that this is not a productivity tool. What is this? Yeah, the, the distinction is, I think of a productivity tool as a very um, shallow but broad product experience. So if you think about, you know, Microsoft Word or Evernote, um, for instance, you know, those are products that, you know, the, the depth of the product isn't um, isn't that significant? You know, it's it's pretty straightforward. You can kind of type words into it. Obviously, you can do some formatting, but there's a limit to to the complexity of what you can build in it. You, know, you can write an essay, you can build a report, um, you can take notes in Evernote. You can use it for a lot of different you know note taking purposes, but it's pretty shallow. And the reason why we're increasingly adamant about distinguishing ourselves from a, a productivity tool is that you know our goal is really not just to be widely but shallowly used. 
It's really about enabling business end users to create deep and useful software. And I think what has really been a surprise to us is how quickly we've seen the, the depth of complexity on the platform emerge. So when we launched this product, we thought it would really just be primarily you know, small businesses, um, even like you know, solo users building very lightweight use cases onto Airtable. But what was surprising was from a very early point, we actually saw these true enterprises, teams within large companies, you know, actually building very powerful and complex use cases, often entailing many different tables, you know, sometimes hundreds of fields. You know, this might be a video production management system for a real media entertainment company. Um, it could have been a a product management pipeline for a, a legitimate, you know, and sizable product team somewhere. And so just the the depth of what you can build in Airtable, we wanted to rival what you could build if you were to literally write code and build your own internal application. Yeah. And I think I've even heard you refer to it as, have you referred to it as a creative tool? Yeah, it's, it, we're definitely focused on creators. And so, you know, this is not a consumptive or, or even, you know, kind of a lightweight productivity experience. It's, it's really something where you build in it. Yeah. And I think even I'm using the wrong word because I think often I've heard you refer to it as platform. It's like a, it goes beyond just the concept of, of tool. I find it incredible. Um, so you guys have recently closed a massive round of funding. And you are at the center of this kind of no-code movement. Tell me, tell me a little bit about what you see happening in this space and why all of a sudden it seems to have come to the foreground. It's funny. I, I Just uh, a couple of days ago, I was trying to find some specific article I'd read on TechCrunch about low-code. And uh, I Googled low-code TechCrunch. And I mean, I kid you not, you can go through the first page, second page, and it's filled with different articles about here's a new low-code company. Here's a panel on low-code. Here's why low-code is a thing. And so it just kind of, it, it hit the world like this whirlwind. Um, you know, there's this book called uh, Crossing the Chasm and the sister book um, is uh, Inside the Tornado. It talks about these technology trends where, you know, there's this chasm of adoption where it's kind of slow, the world doesn't get it yet. Um, and you kind of have to make incremental progress. And then you reach this tornado phase where everybody knows, for instance, that they needed a personal computer by 1986 or seven or, uh, you know, even later, um, you know, and, and so then you start seeing this onslaught of, of adoption at that point. And, and so I think we are kind of going from that chasm that we were in when, when we first started this company, you know, you could go out and Google no code. And I think, you know, you, you probably would have seen more crickets uh, at that time. Uh, and certainly trying to raise money for a, a no code, low code product. Um, you know, was a little bit more of an uphill battle. You know, I think it's just, it, it wasn't something that investors were thinking about or were validating as a uh, space. I think that the real thing that's driven that shift has been, you know, first, uh, I do think that there are a few macro trends that are, you know, on, um, on the side of low code. I mean, one is, uh, there's definitely been a behavioral and a generational shift in terms of knowledge work. And so the way that people want to you know, use their software, I think is different. I think that you, you see more people um, in every role in every company who want to have more control over their software. You know, they don't just want to go and push buttons. They want to go and build. You know, this is the same generation that's going in and uh, being creative on consumer social platforms. It's the same generation that's also experiencing products like Minecraft and, and so on. And so I think there's just this shift in terms of people wanting to build more and those people kind of, you know, becoming more and more prolific within the workplace. Um, I think the second trend is the power of what you can build with a product like Airtable has, you know, significantly expanded over the past even seven years. Um, and what I mean by that is, 
the type of app that you could have built with Airtable seven years ago, we didn't have you know, the vision or necessarily the opportunity to connect all of the different services, the cloud products that are now uh, increasingly out there. So now with Airtable plus Zapier or our own automations product, the value that you can create when you kind of daisy chain all these different services together, just because there's more of them in the world and they're, they're more useful is, is significant and, and it's a huge unlock. And then finally, I think just there's this massive ecosystem of uh, developers out there who are creating these really useful open source modules, you know, on NPM, React. And, you know, as we build out our platform and enable developers to now build on Airtable and use a lot of those same technologies or, or libraries, you know, I think that there's this incredible synergy that we want to create between the sort of true developer community and ecosystem and the community of non-developers with no-code platforms like Airtable. And so just ushering in this world where it's not just a product that you use in a vacuum, but you're tapping into these extraordinary community-driven kind of pieces of value uh, as you go and use it. Yeah, I think uh, the three the three reasons that you mentioned, I mean, I feel like we're obviously just at the beginning of this movement, but I think you guys are definitely at the forefront um, and so it's going to be really exciting to see what happens. Now, I want to come back a little bit to uh, the funding because I feel like, well, this is definitely an exciting time for you guys. Tell me, what are some of the big changes, big projects? What should we expect to see from Airtable in the upcoming months? It's definitely going to be a lot of focus on deepening what you can do with Airtable. So, you know, we've, um, we've really found our soul as this product that has a very high ceiling. You know, I think there's a lot of project management tools out there. There's a lot of productivity tools out there. And, you know, I think it's great that there's innovation on that side of the world. There's a lot of, you know, tools for, for that shallow and broad uh, type of experience. But with Airtable, we're really focused on being this product that's accessible to end users. So it's, it's not a developer product. It's not just something that you have to be super technical to grasp. But yet, you know, we want to give those business end users extraordinary depth in terms of what they can create. So, you know, um, as we continue to double down on platform investments like our apps uh, ecosystem, like automations, like our uh, new Airtable Sync product, which allows you to connect Airtable to other Airtable instances and kind of create this interconnected set of applications um, that share data and work streams, the goal is really to continue to unlock deeper and deeper solutions that people can build. So that's what we're focused on. Uh, not so much building more shallow uh, and broad functionality as perhaps you might see from uh, productivity tools. Super fascinating. I find I find it like you're building an empire. It's incredible. Um, I want to finish now on kind of maybe a bit more of like a personal note, but just maybe something that has kind of just surprised you along this entire journey. Um, it could be maybe an, a ridiculous or maybe unexpected use of Airtable, something you weren't expecting. It could be maybe, you know, second time, or I don't know if you've launched a company even before your previous company, but, you know, as a, as a uh, second time uh, entrepreneur, was there something that you just did not expect to happen that happened? Like just, I'm looking for, you know, really anything that just kind of surprised you since you've launched Airtable. I think just the, I mean, there have been so many crazy use cases of Airtable. I mean, you know, one of, one of my favorite uh, pieces of press coverage was, uh, we had the um, Idaho Farm Bureau write an organic, you know, uh, unsolicited piece about Airtable. Somebody penned this piece called uh, Airtable, you know, the new web, web-based web herd management 
solution. Herd as in, you know, cattle herd, right? And uh, and the cover photo was was this cute little cow staring at the camera. And, you know, the mental image of farmers out there, cattle ranchers going out and actually building apps for themselves to manage cattle. You know, we, we've seen the whole gamut of, of use cases. I mean, uh, I think it's it's actually kind of fun to uh, to get this exposure to all the creativity, all the entrepreneurs, all the people out there in the world who are doing different and sometimes surprising things. I think that's really been the uh, both most rewarding and also most surprising part of the Airtable experience. Um, and I think, you know, for me, it boils down to uh, I have this greater conviction than ever before that creativity and, you know, this entrepreneurial spirit is very widely distributed in the world, even if it's most visibly described or uh, associated with, you know, centers like San Francisco, like New York, um, increasingly with Station F, Paris. But I do think that it's actually much more distributed than most of us realize. You know, entrepreneurial uh, behavior doesn't have to mean literally starting a company, but it means going out there and taking the initiative to build something within an organization, build an app, build a new program. And program could be just a a new initiative. Um, And so I think if there's an increasing theme that we're willing to bet on as a company, it's that we're going to cater to this very widely distributed base of people who are not just in the big hubs, um, but live everywhere uh, and in every company um, who can do extraordinary things if given the right tools to do so. Super. I think that Ohio example is a testament exactly to what you're you're describing there. Um, yeah. Howie, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. We are such huge fans of what you guys are doing. So we are rooting for you in Paris. Thank you so much, Roxanne. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you have feedback or if you want to suggest a topic or a guest, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. Finally, make sure to follow us and not miss out on our next podcast episodes. We are available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Deezer, and Google. All right, see you soon.